Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Gorgias, Part 10. Socrates resumes his discussion with Callicles as Polus and Gorgias listen in. Well then, as I understand you to say, Callicles, I may assume that some pleasures are good and others evil? Yes. The beneficial are good and the hurtful are evil? To be sure, Socrates. And the beneficial are those which do some good, and the hurtful are those which do some evil? Yes. Take, for example, the bodily pleasures of eating and drinking, which we were just now mentioning. You mean to say that those which promote health, or any other bodily excellence, are good, and their opposites evil? Certainly I do. And in the same way, there are good pains and there are evil pains? To be sure. And ought we not to choose and use the good pleasures and pains? Certainly. But not the evil? Clearly. Because if you remember, Polis and I have agreed that all our actions are to be done for the sake of the good. And will you agree with us in saying that the good is the end of all our actions, and that all our actions are to be done for the sake of the good, and not the good for the sake of them? Will you add a third vote to our two? I will. Then pleasure, like everything else, is to be sought for the sake of that which is good, and not that which is good for the sake of pleasure? To be sure, Socrates, but can every man choose what pleasures are good and what are evil, or must he have art or knowledge of them in detail? He must have art. Let me now remind you of what I was saying to Gorgias and Polus. I was saying, as you will not have forgotten, that there were some processes which aim only at pleasure and know nothing of a better and worse and there are other processes which know good and evil. And I consider that cookery, which I do not call an art, but only an experience, was of the former class, which is concerned with pleasure, and that the art of medicine was of the class which is concerned with the good. And now, by the god of friendship I must beg you, Callicles, not to jest, or to imagine that I am jesting with you. Do not answer at random and contrary to your real opinion, for you will observe that we are arguing about the way of human life, and to a man who has any sense at all, what question can be more serious than this? Whether he should follow after that way of life to which you exhort me, and act what you call the manly part of speaking in the assembly, and cultivating rhetoric, and engaging in public affairs, according to the principles now in vogue, or whether he should pursue the life of philosophy, and in what the latter way differs from the former. But perhaps we had better first try to distinguish them as I did before, and when we have come to an agreement that they are distinct, we may proceed to consider in what they differ from one another, and which of them we should choose. Perhaps, however, you do not even now understand what I mean? No, Socrates, I do not. 
Then I will explain myself more clearly, seeing that you and I have agreed that there is such a thing as good, and that there is such a thing as pleasure, and that pleasure is not the same as good, and that the pursuit and process of acquisition of the one, that is pleasure, is different from the pursuit and process of acquisition of the other, which is good. I wish that you would tell me whether you agree with me thus far or not. Do you agree? I do. Then I will proceed and ask whether you also agree with me and whether you think that I spoke the truth when I further said to Gorgias and Polus that cookery, in my opinion, is only an experience and not an art at all, and that whereas medicine is an art, and attends to the nature and constitution of the patient, and has principles of action and reason in each case. Cookery, in attending upon pleasure, never regards either the nature or reason of that pleasure to which she devotes herself, but goes straight to her end, nor ever considers or calculates anything but works by experience and routine, and just preserves the recollection of what she has usually done when producing pleasure. And first, I would have you consider whether I have proved what I was saying, and then whether there are not similar processes which have to do with the soul, some of them processes of art, making a provision for the soul's highest interest, others despising the interest and, as in the previous case, considering only the pleasure of the soul and how this may be acquired, but not considering what pleasures are good or bad and having no other aim but to afford gratification, whether good or bad. In my opinion, Callicles, there are such processes, and this is the sort of thing which I term flattery, whether concerned with the body or the soul, or whenever employed with a view to pleasure and without any consideration of good and evil. And now I wish that you would tell me whether you agree with us in this notion, or whether you differ. I do not differ. On the contrary, I agree, for in that way I shall soonest bring the argument to an end, and shall oblige my friend Gorgias. And is this notion true of one soul, or of two or more? Equally true of two or more. Then a man may delight a whole assembly, and yet have no regard for their true interests? Yes. Can you tell me the pursuits which delight mankind? Or rather, if you would prefer, let me ask, and do you answer? Which of them belong to the pleasurable class, and which of them not? In the first place, what say you of flute-playing? Does not that appear to be an art which seeks only pleasure, Callicles, and thinks of nothing else? I assent. And is not the same true of all similar arts, as, for example, the art of playing the lyre at festivals? Yes. And what do you say of the choral art and dithyrambic poetry? Are not they of the same nature? Do you imagine that Synesius, the son of Meles, cares about what will tend to the moral improvement of his hearers, or about what will give pleasure to the multitude? There can be no doubt, Socrates, about Synesius. And what do you say of his father, Meles, the harp player? Did he perform with any view to the good of his hearers? Could he be said to regard even their pleasure? For his singing was an infliction to his audience. And of harp playing and dithyrambic poetry in general, what would you say? 
have they not been invented wholly for the sake of pleasure? That is my notion of them. And as for the muse of tragedy, that solemn and august personage, what are her aspirations? Is all her aim and desire only to give pleasure to the spectators? Or does she fight against them, and refuse to speak of their pleasant vices, and willingly proclaim in word and song truths welcome and unwelcome? Which, in your judgment, is her character? There can be no doubt, Socrates, that tragedy has her face turned towards pleasure and the gratification of the audience. And is not that the sort of thing, Callicles, which we were just now describing as flattery? Quite true. Well now, suppose that we strip all poetry of song and rhythm and meter. There will remain speech? To be sure. And this speech is addressed to a crowd of people? Yes. Then poetry is a sort of rhetoric? True. And do not the poets in the theatre seem to you to be rhetoricians? Yes. Then now we have discovered a sort of rhetoric which is addressed to a crowd of men, women, and children, free men, and slaves. And this is not much to our taste, for we have described it as having the nature of flattery. Quite true. Very good. And what do you say of that other rhetoric which addresses the Athenian assembly and the assemblies of freemen in other states? Do the rhetoricians appear to you always to aim at what is best? And do they seek to improve the citizens by their speeches? Or are they too, like the rest of mankind, bent upon giving them pleasure, forgetting the public good in the thought of their own interest, playing with the people as with children? and trying to amuse them, but never considering whether they are better or worse for this? I must distinguish. There are some who have a real care of the public in what they say, while others are such as you describe, Socrates. I am contented with the admission that rhetoric is of two sorts, one which is mere flattery and disgraceful declamation, the other which is noble and aims at the training and improvement of the souls of the citizens, and strives to say what is best, whether welcome or unwelcome to the audience. But, Callicles, have you ever known such a rhetoric? Or, if you have, and can point out any rhetorician who is of this stamp, who is he? But indeed, Socrates, I am afraid that I cannot tell you of any such among the orators who are at present living. Well, then, can you mention any one of a former generation who may be said to have improved the Athenians, who found them worse and made them better from the day that he began to make speeches? For, indeed, I do not know of such a man. What? Did you never hear that Themistocles was a good man, and Cimon, and Miltiades, and Pericles, who is just lately dead, and whom you heard yourself? Yes, Callicles. They were good men, if, as you said at first, true virtue consists only in the satisfaction of our own desires and those of others. But if not, and if, as we were afterwards compelled to acknowledge, the satisfaction of some desires makes us better, and of others, worse, and we ought to gratify the one and not the other, 
and there is an art in distinguishing them. Can you tell me any of these statesmen who did distinguish them? No, indeed, I cannot, Socrates. Yet surely, Callicles, if you look, you will find such a one. Suppose that we just calmly consider whether any of these was such as I have described. Will not the good man, who says whatever he says with a view to the best, speak with a reference to some standard, and not at random, just as all other artists, whether the painter, the builder, the shipwright, or any other, look all of them to their own work, and do not select and apply at random what they apply, but strive to give a definite form to it. The artist disposes all things in order, and compels the one part to harmonize and accord with the other part, until he has constructed a regular and systematic whole. And this is true of all artists, and in the same way the trainers and physicians of whom we spoke before give order and regularity to the body. Do you deny this? No, I am ready to admit it. Then the house in which order and regularity prevail is good. That in which there is disorder, evil? Yes. And the same is true of a ship? Yes. And the same may be said of the human body? Yes. And what would you say of the soul? Will the good soul be that in which disorder is prevalent, or that in which there is harmony and order? The latter follows from our previous admissions. What is the name which is given to the effect of harmony and order in the body? I suppose that you mean health and strength? Yes, I do. And what is the name which you would give to the effect of harmony and order in the soul? Try and discover a name for this as well as for the other. Why not give the name yourself, Socrates? Well, if you had rather that I should, I will. And you shall say whether you agree with me, and if not, you shall refute and answer me. Healthy, as I conceive, is the name which is given to the regular order of the body. Whence comes health and every other bodily excellence? Is that true or not? True. And lawful and law are the names which are given to the regular order and action of the soul, and these make men lawful and orderly. And so we have temperance and justice, have we not? Granted. And will not the true rhetorician who is honest and understands his art have his eye fixed upon these? in all the words which he addresses to the souls of men, and in all his actions, both in what he gives and in what he takes away, will not his aim be to implant justice in the souls of his citizens and take away injustice, to implant temperance and take away intemperance, to implant every virtue and take away every vice? Do you not agree? I agree. For what use is there, Callicles, in giving to the body of a sick man who is in a bad state of health a quantity of the most delightful food or drink or any other pleasant thing, which may be really as bad for him as if you gave him nothing, or even worse if rightly estimated? Is not that true? I will not say no to it. 
For in my opinion there is no profit in a man's life if his body is in an evil plight. In that case, his life also is evil. Am I not right? Yes, Socrates. When a man is in health, the physicians will generally allow him to eat when he is hungry and drink when he is thirsty, and to satisfy his desires as he likes. But when he is sick, they hardly suffer him to satisfy his desires at all. Even you will admit that. Yes. And does not the same argument hold of the soul, my good sir? While she is in a bad state, and is senseless and intemperate, and unjust and unholy, her desires ought to be controlled, and she ought to be prevented from doing anything which does not tend to her own improvement. Yes. Such treatment will be better for the soul herself? To be sure, Socrates. And to restrain her from her appetites is to chastise her? Yes. Then restraint or chastisement is better for the soul than intemperance or the absence of control, which you were just now preferring? I do not understand you, Socrates, and I wish that you would ask someone who does. Ah, here is a gentleman who cannot endure to be improved, or to subject himself to that very chastisement of which the argument speaks. I do not heed a word of what you are saying, Socrates, and have only answered hitherto out of civility to Gorgias. What are we to do, then? Shall we break off in the middle? You shall judge for yourself, Socrates. Well. But people say that, quote, a tail should have a head and not break off in the middle, and I should not like to have the argument going about without a head. Please, then, to go on a little longer and put the head on. How tyrannical you are, Socrates! I wish that you and your argument would rest, or that you would get someone else to argue with you. But who else is willing? I want to finish the argument. Cannot you finish without my help, either talking straight on or questioning and answering yourself? Must I then say with Epicharmus, quote, Two men spoke before, but now one shall be enough? I suppose that there is absolutely no help. And if I am to carry on the enquiry by myself, I will first of all remark that not only I, but all of us should have an ambition to know what is true, and what is false in this matter, for the discovery of the truth is a common good. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow, and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>